In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. The first rather hesitant words you hear are mine. I'd like to start pre-journey. I'd like to take you back to and before October 1967 and I'd like you to tell me who was Mary Sevier in October 1967. She was working in Chichester Magistrates Court as Magistrates Clerk's Assistant which actually meant court shorthand writer but I had to do a lot of the admin work as well. Um, and I think I had, I think I was there for about two years probably. Um, and during that time, uh, when I had holidays, I had done quite a lot of hitchhiking. And even at weekends, uh, I used to go out of Chichester and usually get into large trucks. Uh, and sometimes they would go from Chichester round the North Circular Road to get to the north of London. And my sister, very conveniently, had a house on the North Circular Road. And it got to the stage where she would say, Darling, do you mind awfully? When they're dropping you off, could you possibly do it further up the road? Because the neighbours are beginning to talk. And it would be boots and I don't know what other large container trucks. Um, but because I had done a lot of hitchhiking, I think this certainly must have built up a lot of confidence uh, in what I actually ended up doing. Uh, I never had anything really untoward happen when I was hitchhiking. Yes, I did end up in a hotel bedroom in Fontainebleau, <coughs> excuse me, with an Italian who'd been driving a Alfa Romeo. He had no charm whatsoever, very unattractive. I don't think the car went terribly well. Anyway, he decided he was going to stop in Fontainebleau and, and I was coming back to England uh, and I had been, I had actually been away for about nine months working in Israel on, on kibbutzim. So this also had built up my confidence in being capable of, of looking after myself traveling. Uh, so this must have, all, must have all helped. But of course, at that stage, I didn't realize what I was going to do. Um, <clears throat> and the Daily Telegraph was running a competition. It was a holiday competition and there were different categories. And my elder sister and one of my mother's best friends showed me the article quite, quite separately uh, and said, there's an adventure category. With all that you have done, why don't you go in for it? And I had actually, I think the previous year on my holiday, I had gone over, to, flown over to Tripoli in Libya, and I had hitchhiked 
Back and forth from Tripoli, seeing the Roman ruins, Sabrata and Leptus Magna, which were fantastic because there was nobody there. Uh, and then I went into Tunisia and hitchhiked around Tunisia and then came back into Libya. And the only people who were having trouble, trouble were the blonde-haired Germans and Scandinavian boys. And they were being approached by Arab men who were used to women being shut away. And I never had any problems whatsoever. And I have to say, it didn't, didn't do my uh, sex appeal very much good, I didn't think. Um, but that, that obviously also had to build up my confidence. So I had, had quite a lot of experience of, of traveling. And then the, this competition came up. So I thought, right, well, um, I didn't think I could hitchhike wherever I was going to go. I wasn't going to bicycle. And I had to go somewhere that was unusual, that would constitute an adventure. And the Russians had, I think, that year decided that they were going to open up to tourists. Uh, what they weren't saying was that it was only tourists in groups, not individuals. And people were, were laughing at me and saying, well, you can't imagine that a KGB officer is going to sit on the back of a motorcycle when I decided that really the only thing I could do was get a motorbike. Not that I'd ever been on a motorbike, but that was beside the point. You can learn to ride a bicycle, you learn to ride a, a motorbike. But I didn't know how to drive a car, so I didn't know anything about gears, nothing at all. Totally ridiculous. Um, and I used to have lunch in uh, the police station in Chichester, uh, usually sitting with two motorcycle mechanics. And I said, I think I'm going to go to Russia on this competition and I'm going to go on a motorbike. And I got it all worked out where I was going. I knew where the petrol stations were. I'd done a lot of research, even without modern day Google and that sort of thing. Uh, and I wrote off to the Russian embassy saying I'd like a visa and told them what I was going to do. And eventually I got a letter back from Intourist, which I have now found amongst all the memorabilia, which said, we're very sorry, but we cannot confirm that we will grant you a visa because of the distances involved. Where I went out of Russia had nothing to do with them, how I got there, how I came out. Uh, and in front of a school friend who was visiting, I can see myself now throwing the letter on the floor in the kitchen of our bungalow and saying, I'll show those bloody reds what distances are. I shall go to India. And my friend Carol, who doesn't remember this, uh, said, oh, but once you've been to India and come back, they'll then say, because of the distances you've just covered, it won't be suitable for you to come on your bike to Russia. So that is how my trip started. It was to go to Russia. The Russians wouldn't let me in. So I had to do something with the bike. When my mother found out that I was going to go to India on the motorbike, she said, oh, no, you're not. And I said, oh, yes, I am. And she said, no, you are not. And I said, in that case, I will sell the bike. I will blame you because I will lose money on it. And I shall hitchhike to India instead. And she said, oh, right. And she picked up a cloth and she said, now then, darling, which part of the motorbike shall I polish? Because, yes, you're going to be better off going on a motorbike than hitchhiking. You will at least be independent, even if you don't know how to ride the bloody thing. And I went on an RACACU course to learn how to ride it, how to maintain it, 
but that was quite difficult because on this course I was the only female, I was the only one with a motorbike and all the others had Lambrettas and, and scooters, young boys. And they had four-stroke motorbikes, whereas my BSA Bantam was a two-stroke, which was totally different. And eventually, when we had the, the theoretical evenings on a Wednesday over in Bogner, uh, they actually got an RAC man to turn up and explain to me what two-stroke was and how it all worked. And he was, he was very, very nice. And I think, people, I think people did think that I was probably going to go. Um, well, because I thought I was going to go. Uh, I think most people, probably me too, thought, well, she'll get as far as Italy and she'll be back in time for Christmas. Because by the time I left, it was the end of October. And I'd been in touch with BSA, who was still a going concern in those days, and said, uh, I'm sure there are other people who've been to India on BSAs. Can you give me any feedback? And where are your agents? So they kindly sent me a list of their agents. The first one I looked for in Istanbul turned out to be a hairdresser's. So I thought, oh, well, that's really par for the course. And I think when I got to Tehran and I looked for the BSA agent there, um, I don't think it existed at all. Nobody seemed to know where it was. So I didn't have a great deal of faith in them, but there were motorcycle mechanics everywhere I went, so it didn't really matter. Um, and come the day of packing up the motorcycle, there is a picture of me with the luggage way over my head. I didn't have the kitchen sink, but I had a cooking stove. I, I had the works, I had a tent. I think I only used the tent a couple of times. I was petrified of sleeping, sleeping in the tent on my own. <clears throat> and I stayed in youth hostels, which is what everybody did in those days. Um, it was either I suppose, small hotels in the different towns, or it was youth hostels and everybody would hitchhike or maybe uh, the ones who weren't from Europe had a Eurail pass, so they would be traveling on trains. <clears throat> anyway, I set off, and I think if I remember rightly, it was pouring with rain when I left Selsey to come to the ferry in Portsmouth. And the passport man said, you're going to India. So I said, well, that's the general idea. And how do you think you're going to get to India on 80 pounds? So I, I said, uh, well, I'm going to have to work along the way. And in those days, there was a, a, a travel restriction. You were allowed 50 pounds for travel, I think in traveler's checks, 15 pounds me and 15 pounds for the motorbike. And if you went with a car, you had 25 pounds because a school friend of mine remembers that. Uh, so off I went with £80, and I paid for the motorbike, uh, paid 99 guineas if I remember rightly for that, and then a lot of add-ons. I had leg shields put on, I had a screen put on, um, which is what one did, I suppose, in those days. I couldn't afford leathers. I don't even know whether they made leathers in those days for women. I would have had to have a man's, but the man's would, at six foot tall, the man's would have been much broader than me. Um, and I hadn't got any money. And I, I bought, I don't know how I did, but I bought a Halley Henson sailing outfit, uh, which took me around the world. It proved to be accident proof because I went across the road quite a few times on my shoulders and there's not a scratch on the top. 
The trousers have got quite torn at the knees where I've fallen, but they've been sewn up quite a few times. Um, it was windproof, it was weatherproof, it wasn't warm, and I don't think Hallie Hansen make the same sort of outfit in that material. I think now a lot of it is quite thin. It's waterproof, it's weatherproof, uh, but it's, it's very thin, um, I suppose probably, because rolling it up when you don't need it. So off I went, a picture of me with my Wellington boots on, my Hallie outfit and luggage, as I say, up over the top of my head. And I went over on the ferry to France and I was heading for a friend who lived in Paris, just off the Arc de Triomphe. And I went through Rouen about lunchtime and my very beautiful red leather handbag fell off the back of the bike. I mean, obviously, every female going around the world, not that I was going around the world, but going to India has a red leather handbag and it was leather too. And the truck coming along behind me went right over my handbag. And inside were two little glass jars of Avon perfume, that cream that my two sisters had given me as goodbye presents. And they were totally and utterly shattered inside the bag. It stank like, well, I've never been in a horse, <laughs> a horse parlour, but it probably smelled like a horse parlour as one, one imagines it to be. So I managed to pick that up and put it back onto the luggage. And then I got to the Arc de Triomphe and it's all cobblestones. And I think it still is. And I went round trying to find how to get up this little lane off the Arc de Triomphe, but it was one way only. And I didn't know where the other end was. And all the luggage fell off because the luggage was tied on with octopus straps and they were elasticated. And the whole luggage just swung on, on the cobblestones and the whole lot cascaded down onto the road round the Arc de Triomphe. And a gendarme appeared, screamed at me, obviously thought I was a young man, screamed and screamed at me and told me to pick up all the luggage and get it back on the bike. So I sat there, I think I did cry, and then I picked it all up and I put it on the bike and hoped to God it was going to stay on. And then when he wasn't looking, I shot up this little side street that I needed, but in the wrong direction. And then I found my, my, my friend and stayed with her. And the concierge there, when she had her husband, uh, she was widowed now, he and she used to ride a motorbike. And when it came to the day before my leaving, the concierge said to my friend Jenny, do you think that your English friend would allow me to put the luggage on her bike for her? Because it all fell off and it's not been put on properly. So Jenny said, oh yes, I'm sure. So Madame Concierge went off and got yards and yards of rope and I gave her all the luggage and she tied it all onto the bike and she did such a beautiful job that I left it there all the way down to Marseille because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I managed to find my toothpaste and toothbrush and I probably not even a change of underwear. <laughs> and eventually when I got down to Marseille, I stayed in the youth hostel there. And I do remember distinctly that, that there were two very tall South African boys who were hitchhiking around Europe. And one of them was I think he was a qualified lawyer, 
So because I had been trained as a legal secretary before I went and worked in, in the magistrate's court, he and I had quite a lot in common, apart from which he was very, very nice. Um, and I was saying how depressed I was about the whole thing and I didn't know what I was doing and honest to God, I really, really wanted to pack it in. And they said, no, obviously it's difficult. There isn't anybody else on a motorcycle. There isn't a female on a motorcycle on her own. It's not going to be easy. You can't expect it to be easy because you're doing something that's very, very different. So persevere. And if you don't want the motorbike, we'll buy it off you. And I said, you're not buying my motorbike. <laughs> uh, and then it was really nice because we went from the whole crowd of us in the Marseille, Marseille Youth Hostel who were all going east along the Riviera. We all got to the next youth hostel and then they would get there ahead of me and I would ride up on my motorbike and they'd all shout, here comes Mary, here comes Mary. And it, it made it, it really actually was a false sense of security, I found out later on. And then from uh, Marseille, I think it was to Nice, Nice to Genoa. Uh, Genoa, I think most people went to Florence. Uh, and then we went down to Rome. And then everybody was going on to Naples, to youth hostel there. And I said, oh, haven't you ever heard the saying, see Naples and die? And I said, I'm sorry, not yet, not yet. No, I've got to get, get further than that. So I said goodbye to them in, in Rome. And it was terrible, riding northeast up to Trieste and round to what was Yugoslavia and the coast road there, which was beautiful. But I, I, I really was very, very upset that I had lost them all because we had been traveling, I think probably about a week together. Um, and, and they were a really, really good crowd. Uh, and they did encourage me. Um, but as I said earlier, it was a bit of a false sense of security. Anyway, I then persevered, went right down the Yugoslav coast road, <clears throat> got to Thessaloniki, and I suppose I was in the youth hostel there, and I heard that the Greeks and the Turks were fighting on Cyprus. Not necessarily on the mainland, uh, but certainly on Cyprus where there was a big division over there and the British army were there. And in fact, I had been offered a job with Anafi on Cyprus if I could get there. So I contacted them and they said, no, 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 well, you can't come, it's, it's too dangerous, terribly sorry. No, you can't, you'll have to look for work somewhere else. So I can remember going to see the British consul and saying that I wanted to go to uh, go over into to, to Turkey because I'd got some friends in Istanbul. And he said, no, 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 you can't. Um, the border is closed. So I said, I'm not sure that it is. I think somebody has actually come across uh, that I've met in the youth hostel. And he said, no, 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 no. And then he said, well, if you were a daughter of mine, I wouldn't let you go. So I can remember saying to him, but not liking to be rude to him, I always showed respect for people. And I said to him, as far as I know, you're not my father, so I am going to go. And off I trotted, and of course, like all the news that filters through, there is a bridge over a river, which is the border, was the border anyway, between Greece and, and Turkey. And the soldiers were all swapping cigarettes on the bridge um, and chatting away, and they waved me through, and I got to Istanbul, uh, and I found the friends that I had got an introduction to, and I stayed with them. And uh, he worked, he was an American, American Greek, Nick. And he got me a job in 
the American Military Dependence School just outside Istanbul. And I worked there for six months and I got paid a $100 bill at the end of each month by way of payment because it was illegal. I should not have been working there at all. Eventually, I found a Turkish family to live with uh, in order to speak English to the daughter. And that was very interesting. And then I got jobs doing babysitting and housework and ironing and all the sort of things that one does when you're not allowed to have a work permit. Uh, and then come June, the, the end of the term, I then left to go around Turkey. But where I had been living in the block of flats with the Turkish family, there were two editors from two different national newspapers. And of course they knew about my motorcycle trip. So I certainly appeared on the front of one of the newspapers, if not both newspapers on the front page as the English girl who's going around the world on a motorcycle. Um, and it is only very recently that I have found some postcards that I sent to my mother from each town I stayed in going around Turkey saying, everywhere I go everybody waves at me and they all seem to know who I am. But I have to say I didn't remember that. It was only from reading the postcards that I saw this was happening. Um, and I got down, I, I left west of Istanbul <coughs> and I went down to what we would call Gallipoli, Dardanelles. And on the ferry going across, I met a father and son. And father was very senior in the army. He had got gold braid all over himself in his uniform. And I think the son was in the army too. And they were going to stay in a motel and they knew who I was. So they said, will you please come and stay with us? So I said, thank you very much, but I, I don't accept hospitality. No, 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 um, perfectly okay, I'll find myself a little guest house. No, 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 you're a guest in our country, no, please. So, so they put me up in a room, separate room, in the motel. But the only trouble was, most of the night I was kept awake by either father trying to get through the door or the son trying to get through the door. And I was not abused. They tried the window, they tried absolutely everything. I don't think they ever tried it at the same time. Whether they'd worked it out that one was stirring at one time and one was, I really don't know. When it came to breakfast, I, I behaved as though nothing had happened. Um, uh, so I had breakfast and then I bid them a farewell and off I trotted. And as I say, I, I went round all down the west coast of Turkey, along the, half, halfway along the south coast, with people waving at me. And about halfway along, somehow I got the news that they were fighting. I think there was fighting Syrians. It wasn't the Israelis. I think it was Syrians and the Lebanese were fighting over some border dispute. And I think people were saying, you can't follow the road round because I was going to go round uh, down to Damascus and then I was going to follow what was called um, the oil pipeline road into Iraq and then up to Tehran and I think the RAC had actually given me a, a routing for this uh, so I thought mm, what do I do now but I had a, I had a map a very good map of Turkey uh, and so I decided I would cross to Ankara up to the, the Black Sea. Before that happened uh, the coast road on the, on the south coast road of, of Turkey is very indented and the road was sort of go up and down and round and round and it was quite late one afternoon 
and I was very tired. I hadn't seen anybody all afternoon. I hadn't seen any, any habitation whatsoever. And I suppose because I was tired, uh, the front wheel hit the gravel on the side of the road and the bike tipped over. The Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Listen to episode two now.